Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the opportunity to gather as a family. I pray, Lord, that you would bless our time of teaching and our time of spending time in your word. Lord, your word is a light into our feet and a lamp to our feet, uh, light into our feet and a lamp into our path. And Father, I pray that it would lead us well this morning. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Well, if you would have a seat, and while you're doing that, turn to the book of Revelation. Uh, Revelation chapter 1 is where we're going to be today, and I know that's a little unusual for us to start in this way rather than having somebody just come and read the text over us this morning. Um, And so uh, put your finger right there in Scripture because we are going to uh, spend a little bit of time there. Revelation chapter 1. The best decisions are the ones that kind of leverage our own ignorance for life change. Uh, Let me unpack that statement a little bit. Uh, The best decisions, the biggest decisions, the ones that have the most consequence in our lives are the ones that we're actually ignorant to make. So so imagine this, go back to when you were maybe 16, 17, you're thinking about going to college. Uh, You may have had a place that you knew that you went to go to college, but you didn't know at all what was waiting for you there. You were making a decision, one of the more important decisions of your life, in ignorance of exactly what it meant, because you would get there and the place would actually form you. Uh, You may take a class that uh, really just changed the trajectory of your life. You took biology and you go, nope, not pre-med. I'm going somewhere else. Uh, I'm not going to be able to do this. And so you make this decision kind of in ignorance, not knowing what's out there waiting for you. And a lot of our biggest life decisions are there in that place. The decision to get married is probably the second largest decision of your life. Uh, Having some idea of who Jesus is, that's number one. Number two, who are you going to marry? If, if God calls you into marriage, that is going to impact the rest of your life. And you don't really even know who you're marrying because that person is going to change. You're going to sharpen one another. They are going to form who you are. So you can try to make the decision very rationally, but at the end, you're making it in faith. Why? Because it will change your life forever. Uh, last example of this, maybe even most notably for a lot of us in the room, is the decision to have kids. You're like, I'm not sure if I'm ready yet. Uh, you know, we all know at some level, you're not. Nobody's ready to have children. You will have a baby in faith that God will just provide as you go along the way. You have children and then they change you. It increases your capacity for love. You have your first child and then you think about having a second and you're like, I don't know how I could possibly love another human being as much as I love this one. And then God changes your life again. He increases the capacity for love for a child. The most significant decisions in our lives are the ones that we make in ignorance, but also faith, and then they change our lives forever. This morning, we're talking about church planting. This is a church planting Sunday. Uh, We're partnering together with Acts 29 churches throughout the globe. If you didn't know this, we're a part of the Acts 29 network. This is a network of churches that are devoted to church planting. We were a church plant. We want to be a church that plants other churches, that helps plant other churches. We have, by God's grace, uh, done that in the past. We're going to talk more about that in the future. But it's very hard for me to think about church planting without thinking about one of the most significant decisions that Sawyer and I ever made. And yes, it was made in complete and total ignorance, and it changed our lives forever. And it was to actually be a part of a church plant. 
Almost 15 years ago, my wife and I decided to help plant a church, not to be church planters necessarily. Uh, I, I sat down, uh, Sawyer and I both sat down with another couple named Nick and Tessa Osterman. We were in a very small little restaurant called Nonatata, and uh, they were telling us about how they were going to go plant a church and invited us into that and even said, Chris, you could be a pastor in this church. And I literally had no desire to do that. And I said, out of my mouth, I will never be a pastor in a church. And, and so we obviously understand at some level that there is a lot of ignorance in statements like that. But that's how we got started. We, Sawyer and I, uh, could not have anticipated all those many years ago that we would have been church planters, that we would have ended up in ministry of some kind. And so maybe that is actually even your story this morning. You don't even know it. God is writing a story in your life for you to eventually become a church planter or to participate on a church planting core team. You don't even know about it yet. But what I want to tell you is, is that I want for it to at least be on your radar. It was not on our radar. My wife and I, we had grown up in the church. We had um, come through this amazing ministry in high school, and I didn't know it, but all the time, these authors like uh, John Piper and Tim Keller were creating a huge capacity of desire to see the gospel spread. We had these amazing mentors, uh, you know, people like Dave Phillips uh, and John Dansby. These people are probably unknown to you, but those people were forming us. They were giving us small bits of responsibility to lead a discipleship group or a Bible study, and it created a capacity in us to desire other people to not just, uh, you know, hear the gospel, but to know and to believe the gospel. God used people like Jimmy Williams and Adam Casper and these men that were a part of my life during that time. Uh, to create a desire actually to be evangelistic and to be mindful of what happens in church planting. And God used all of these things to so value the gospel that ultimately, shortly after marriage, Sawyer and I uh, realized that we wanted to see our city, this city, the city of Fort Worth, filled with the gospel. And we had this conviction that came alongside of that desire to see the gospel really take root and flourish in our city that we believe that the one primary best place for that to happen was within the church. I've searched the scriptures and I can't find any other uh, thing that God has left behind for us other than his word and his spirit in the church in order to actually institutionalize and found and deeply root the gospel in all of humanity, to carry the gospel out to the ends of the earth. Those are the three primary ways that God does that. My wife and I, we support uh, Young Life. I love Young Life. You know what Young Life isn't? It's not the church. They wouldn't even say that they're the church. They're an evangelistic community that is pulling people in to tell them about the gospel and then hopefully launch people into lifelong faith as a part of a healthy local body of believers. I love the NET here locally. The NET is an organization that serves women who are uh, being trafficked, who are coming out of the industry of sex trafficking. I love that organization. It is excellently run. God has provided mightily. I've, over the last 12 years, gotten the privilege to see it grow from a small fledgling idea into a large organization that loves and serves people for the name and sake of Jesus. But you know what it's not? It's not the church. 
My wife and I have a huge desire because uh, we stand in the midst of a culture that is really trying to tug and pull at uh, the hearts of children, our children, your children, and pull them into unbelief. I believe that. I know that that's a big statement. I know that we could unpack that a lot. But So that has given me a heart for uh, classical Christian education teaching our children to have a, a mind to receive the, uh, the different things that they can see in this life, to be able to uh, think about it, to be able to talk about it. I love classical education, but I love classical Christian education. We're a part of a really wonderful uh, local uh, school named Covenant Classical School. I'd sing its praises for you all morning. I love it dearly, but you know what it's not? It's not the church. It's not the church. God has instituted the church to further the revealing of the established kingdom of Jesus Christ. Jesus' church is worth your life, and building her up is going to give your life an immense amount of meaning. I can tell you that from personal testimony. Unlike any other organization that you could serve in this city, the church is the one ordained place where discipleship and evangelism and growth and culture being brought up is going to be the, the everyday efforts of the people there. I'm convinced that the church is primarily charged to do so. For us, for uh, Sawyer and I, I can tell you that it has been uh, worth everything. I can't tell you that uh, church planting has been easy or not heartbreaking in some sense. It has. We've been through a lot of heartache that otherwise wouldn't have been there. We could have retreated into a very comfortable lifestyle, and the church is a very uncomfortable place to be. I'll just come out and tell you. But I cannot, Sawyer and I cannot imagine our lives any differently than investing and loving the bride of Christ, specifically how she is expressed here at City Church. God might pluck me up and put me in a different country. He may call me to a different church plant. But right now, I mean, my life's desire, my life's work, I want to be here at City Church with this people. I love it. It is worth our lives. I'll say it again. Building her up has given us an immense amount of meaning, and we really cannot imagine our lives any other way. God used that ignorance early on for immense life change for Sawyer and I. So this morning, where would we go? Where would we go to kind of prove this out? Where would we go to talk about church planting, what the church is? Now, most of us would go like, well, go to Acts. This is where we see the church really uh, beginning and all of these churches plant throughout uh, Asia and there in Jerusalem and it continues spreading. And of course, you could. You could go to the Great Commission there in Matthew chapter 28 and you could see that Jesus stands there and he says, all authority under heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore, making disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit and teaching them all to obey all that I have commanded you. We could go there. That'd be a wonderful place. We're going to spend a little bit of time there. We could go to Paul's conversion and see that Paul, this man, meets the resurrected Jesus on the road to Damascus, and everything changes for him, and he becomes the most prolific church planter in history. But what I want to tell you is, is that if you want to know about church planting, go to Revelation chapter 1. 
Why? There's a very, very specific reason. Because there is maybe the clearest view, the biggest, most awe-encompassing view of the resurrected Jesus. There at Paul's conversion, you uh, see him momentarily. In Acts, you see him working in and through, but he's there really just in that first chapter, the resurrected Jesus, before he ascends. In Revelation, we see him there over and over again. And so what I want to let you know this morning is that we are going to be talking about how a legion of lampstands illuminates the living Lord. Legions of lampstands illuminate the living Lord. That's where we're kind of uh, going this morning. And as we kind of take the road to get there, I got to tell you, this is not going to be as, uh, as expository as most mornings are. We're going to take a look. We're going to try to wring some things out of the text this morning, but there's way too much to cover. And so we're going to pick and choose a couple of things and really maximize on a few points. And so it's a more thematic morning than it is uh, really an expositional morning. But as we go along this road, I really want to point out a few things as we look at this, these legions of lampstands illuminating the living Lord. First, we need to look at the living Lord. We're going to kind of take it in reverse order. If you wrote that down this morning, we're going to look at the living Lord. Then what we're going to do is we're going to take a look at the luminous lampstands. And finally, we're going to look at the light-bearing legion. That's kind of where we're going this morning. So how do we understand Revelation? Well, first, we've got to read it. Verses 1 through 6. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before the throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of earth. What we get by way of some context here, just briefly to summarize, is that revelations were given by the Father to Jesus to share with his servants through John, through John the Apostle. Now, John, you recognize from the book of John, you know, he's uh, one of the apostles. He was one of those that Jesus called into his ministry, said, come here, be my disciple, walks alongside of him. He's the one who Jesus loved. We see that uh, John goes on to plant churches. So he's not just a disciple whom Jesus loved. He's also an apostle. He's a church planter. And he says specifically that he bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus. In fact, he repeats it twice, to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus. And for his trouble in verse 9, if you look there, you will see that he was exiled to the island of Patmos. So he was a bit of a problem. 
to the rulers and authorities. He started to shake things up so much that they uh, imprisoned him and then sent him uh, in chains to the island of Patmos, and then he was exiled there. And that's where we see him come in this morning. Verse 9 says that he was exiled to the island of Patmos, where he claims to be a partner in tribulation, a partner in the kingdom, a partner in the patient endurance. And then he promises us this by way of the revelation. He says that those who read and hear and keep this prophecy are what? They are blessed. That, that's, a, that's a real promise that God is really making in real time to us today. The reader of this prophecy is blessed. The hearer of this prophecy is blessed. The doer of this prophecy, those who are obedient to the prophecy are blessed. Do you want to receive blessing this morning? We're venturing into a blessed book. Please listen. But why? Why are they blessed? Because the time is near. But who is he writing to? Verse 7 says this, to the seven churches that are in Asia. And then he names them and he even says, this is the reason why I'm going to write to you grace and peace to you. Now, here's the truth. Many of us neglect the book of Revelations. We, we don't often read it. We, we count the authors and the pastors that spend a lot of time there as being somewhat strange. It's hard because there's a lot of symbology here in this book. It's hard to understand. People argue about it quite a lot. We all know in some sense how it's all going to end. Jesus is going to come back, ball game. He's going to do his deal. He's going to wed his bride, and we're going to live forever in a remade heaven and earth. So why really, why really study Revelation? Why really get into and invest in the book of Revelation? What we need to know this morning is that this book is not to be neglected because it's scary or symbolic or hard to decipher or because we believe maybe it's not applicable. What I want to tell you today is that I hope to show you this morning that it is very applicable, not in some ethereal sense, but for you here today. And the first way that I want to do that is by looking at the living Lord. Verse 4. We see that, Paul, uh, that uh, John has actually received this revelation, and it is from, verse 4, him who is, who was, and who is to come, and from the seven spirits, in verse 5, from Jesus. Who is Jesus? We get a beautiful view of who Jesus is, not only because it tells us, but because here in a moment we're going to actually see a picture, a word picture of what John saw. Jesus is the faithful witness, he is the firstborn from the dead, and he is the ruler of kings on earth. We then not only hear this uh, small bit of who Jesus is, but John launches into a doxology in verse 6 and says, to him who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. To him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So we see that John's response here is to get a good view of Jesus, to say who Jesus is, and then to praise and worship Jesus because of it. So here this morning, we have application. It's not a scary book. This is telling us who Jesus is. Verse 7, it says, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him. He wants John, he wants us to get a look at Jesus, to get a glorious glimpse. And I want you to pay attention to a very 
curious word there. He's coming with the clouds. Now, we see him ascend into the clouds. We see in Acts where he ascends, he ascends into the clouds. But I get the point here that it may not be that he's coming on clouds. There's other you know, passages that talk about him coming on clouds and that he has a white horse and that he has a tattoo and he's commanding the legions of angels. Like We get a great and glorious look. Here, I think that those clouds may be the cloud of witnesses. He may be coming with clouds, uh, with angels and saints so numerous that they just look like a bright yellow cloud. He's coming with, not on, with the clouds. What a beautiful, amazing view that we get of Jesus. Verse 10, verse 10 uh, through 11 says this, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Okay, so we, we immediately kind of get this view that uh, John was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Now, here's something very curious that I see there. John is there on the Lord's day. What is the Lord's day? It's Sunday, just like us. He's there probably mostly alone on this uh, island, and he's there with other criminals, and he's decided to take a day, the Lord's day, a Sunday, to worship God. And all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit falls on him, and he's taken up, and he's given a vision of a lot of things that are to come. That's what verses 10 through 11 tell us. And then we hear that he is told to write what he sees in a book. We're told that he has this vision and that God wants to give John a vision so that he can tell the rest of us about it. Verse 13, sorry, 12. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands one like the Son of Man. That's curious. One like a son of man. What did he look like? He was clothed with a long robe, with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like flames of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was, the sun, was like the sun shining. How? In full strength. Here's, here's what I want to do real quick. We, we often can hear a sentence with a lot of commas, and then we just kind of check out. We let it kind of wash over us. Here's what I want you to do if you feel comfortable. Close your eyes, and I'm going to read this slowly, and I want you to do what I think John is wanting us to do, which is what the Father is wanting us to do, and that's get a glimpse of Jesus. Close your eyes and listen to this. Then... I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long rope, with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like flame of fire, his feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. 
And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was shining like the sun in full strength. What a glorious glimpse that we get of Jesus. He has on this long robe. It's like the one in the Old Testament that flows down and fills up the temple. We see that his hairs are white as wool, white as snow. He is wise. His eyes are like fire. His voice is like roaring waters. He's holding in his hand seven stars, and he's protecting them. And he has this mouth sword of power, and his face shines like the sun in full strength. And John's response is fearful. He falls down like a dead man. In verse 17, uh, Jesus uh, says, fear not. He places his hand on him. Fear not. Why? He says, I am the first and the last. I'm the living one. I died, but I am alive forevermore. And this is the essence of the gospel. If you were to come into contact with a righteous, perfect Savior, what would you do? You would die. But Jesus says, fear not. Why? I'm the first and the last. I died, but I am alive forevermore. Why can you not fear Jesus and all of his awesome glory and his radiance of face, his beaming of eyes, his righteousness that he holds the seven stars in his hands? Why is that not fearful to you? Because he rose from the grave. This is, there's something about his resurrected status that is telling you not to fear. Jesus says, I have the keys to death and Hades. He's not to be feared because he can conquer death for you. He is resurrected. He is the living Lord. All power in heaven and earth has been given to him. So how do we apply this? How do we get this glimpse of Jesus and know what to do with it? The first thing that we need to do is that we need to want to know Jesus more. We want to get glorious glimpses of Jesus. If you're being like impacted by God's word this morning, if by closing your eyes and reading his word, you're getting a fuller view of Jesus and you're like, I want more of that, great. I think that that's exactly what Jesus is after. We want to know more about Jesus, but we also want to be known by Jesus. And then finally, I think that there's another thing that's implied here, that we want others to know Jesus too. How? How do we want for other people to know this? How do we want to know it more? How do we need to be known by Jesus? Well, there are some common answers on a church planting Sunday. One is evangelism. We, we could talk a lot today about evangelism. We could talk a lot about disciple making. We could talk a lot about uh, Bible studies. We could talk a lot about uh, teaching and preaching. We could talk a lot about a lot of different things uh, that would create a culture where Jesus might be known by you, known to you, and others might come in and know Jesus too. But I want to make a specific point about where that happens and that's where we go from this look at a living Lord to a luminous lampstand. We're going to look at the luminous lampstands. Verse 12, then I turned to see the voice. And what did he see? When he looked to see who was talking, what did he see first? Did he see Jesus? No, no, no. He sees the lampstands. I saw seven golden lampstands. Now, what is this all about? 
If we were to turn over to Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 through 16, we would actually discover this. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Did you hear the the, the, uh, head fake there? So I turned to look and see who it was that was talking, and the first thing that I saw was the lampstands. What is the lampstand doing? Why in this mental image that you got of Jesus, the Son of Man, standing in the midst of all of these lampstands, how did you see it? What were the lampstands doing? Were the lampstands the first thing that you would have chosen to look at? No. But Jesus reveals this to John, and the lampstands are the first things that he sees. Why? Because those lampstands are giving light to all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works, sure, but give glory to God, who, the Father, who is in heaven. Why are the lampstands lit? They're lit to give light to all who are in the house. There's actually an order here. There is a reason why God the Father is doing what he is doing. The way that he is revealing Jesus has to do with the church. There's a lot of people that think about the church very negatively. You might be one of them. There are lots of us that have imbibed this lie that the church is actually a pretty evil place filled with lots of hypocrites. And why would you ever go there? You can get direct access to Jesus. Now, here's to be sure, the church is filled with a lot of evil people. Otherwise, Jesus wouldn't have had to die. He died for sinners who are meant to actually be raised from the death of their sins and to live to give glory to the one who stands in the midst of them forever. And so here's what I want you to hear in all of this. We find that the lamp on a stand has a purpose, and it's not itself. The lamp on a stand means to illuminate, to glorify something else. Verse 13, and in the midst... In the midst of the lamp stands one like a son of man. In your mental image, did you see Jesus standing in the midst of the lampstands, illuminated by the lampstands? Now, let's, let's be very clear about something. You might be thinking, man, Chris, you're going way out on a limb here. Jesus doesn't need our light, and you'd be right. We're told right in this passage that his face shines like the sun, and his eyes are like fire. Lamps surrounding him are just simply shining that light back to him. The image that we get is is that Jesus is the one who has gone around and lit all of these lampstands, and then he stands right in the middle of them to be glorified by the light that he set, the fire that he set. That's, I think, the image that we're meant to get here. That though he has plenty of his own light, we are to glorify and illuminate him. And there's a lot of curious imagery here. We get this uh, mouth sword coming out of Jesus' mouth. It's two-edged, and he, uh, we see in other places that he means to use it to strike down unrighteous nations. And we see that in his hand are he holding seven stars. These stars would have also been luminous. That's very interesting. But in verse 20, we see that Jesus says something specifically about it. 
He says, as for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands. So he, he even just knows that this is symbolic. He knows that it's mysterious. So if you approach the book of Revelations and you're like, man, what, what a confusing book. What, 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 uh, what symbology does, uh, what, what is he using this symbolism for? You might just take comfort in the fact that some of it is meant to be mysterious, but greater comfort that Jesus actually means to explain it. How does he mean to explain it? He just tells us straight up. Look there uh, just below verse 20. It says, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. Is that clear? No, but he's telling us He's telling us what it is, but then he is clear on the other side. It says, the lampstands are the seven churches. So the stars are the angels of the churches. These could have been heavenly beings that were assigned to the church, but I've got, I've got a different interpretation. If you go to the uh, chapter title uh, for uh, number two, sorry, not the title, but the actual first verse, it says, to the angel of the church at Ephesus, write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance. That's the same word that John was using. And how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. What I will let you go and research later is that there is direct application here. These seven angels aren't some mysterious, in my opinion, are not uh, some mysterious kind of angel that's assigned to all of these individual churches. He's actually writing that the elders and the pastors of these seven churches might know what Jesus thinks of their church, might be able to be celebrated and encouraged where there is obedience, but then also uh, admonished and rebuked where there is unfaithfulness. I think that the seven stars are pastors, but here's what I know for sure. I know that the lampstands in verse 11 are churches. The lampstands, the things that are illuminating Jesus are churches. In fact, we're told in verse 11 that they're specific churches. They're the churches at Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergernum and Thyatira and Sardis and Philadelphia. We, we see that they're specific churches. They're not just every church. Here they are actual, literal churches in these cities. Jesus does not need to stand in the midst of these churches, but he chooses to because he is the king. The church has decided and ordained these churches to illuminate the king and his kingdom, to help him expand and bear the light and carry forth the light of his kingdom. And this is what Jesus always does. He walks along the side of this sea and he says to the disciples, come and follow me. I will make you fishers of men. How many? Twelve of them. Was it a specific number? It was literally a specific number. Here we're actually told that uh, there are seven lampstands, that there are only seven lampstands. All authority has been given on heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of every nation. This was literally a command that was given to 12 disciples, actually 11. But these disciples, these seven lampstands are written to specifically. 
how do we bring application out of this if it was just written to seven individual churches? And that's where we need to understand that we get a look, we get a glimpse of the living Lord, we uh, see the luminosity of these lampstands, but lastly, we need to know that we are a light-bearing legion. There are legions of light bearers. So how can I say this? This uses a specific number. It uses the, uh, the, the number seven. Okay, what do we make of that? We see it several times in these verses. Beginning in verse uh, four, uh, we actually see that the, uh, the greeting is given uh, by the Father, the one who is, who was, and is to come. That's the Father. We're told that uh, there are these seven spirits, and then at the very end, we're told that there is the one who is Jesus. So why the seven spirits? What, what I want for us to know and to understand is, is that there is symbolism going on here at the same time that there is specificity of the churches. Am I making sense? There are seven actual churches, but by using those seven, because he didn't include the church at Colossae, he didn't include the uh, church at Capernaum, he didn't include the church in Jerusalem, which we knew were already there. So why was he writing just to these seven churches if he was not also writing to something more? Seven Seven spirits. These seven spirits are meant to symbolize the complete Holy Spirit. So it wasn't seven individual spirits. We, you can read verse 4 and actually get the idea that uh, what is, uh, the, the letter that is being written actually has the authority of God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But there he is being represented in these seven spirits before the throne. So we can understand from this that the number seven has something to do with holiness, with completeness. So when it talks just about the seven churches, I don't believe that it's only talking about seven specific lampstands that are surrounding Jesus in Revelation chapter one. I believe that this is talking about the church, the church universal. Yes, seven specific churches, but seven being the church universal. The picture we get is of Jesus standing in the midst of not seven churches individually, but his church and him being illuminated on every side. Very simply put, here's the church's job. The church's job is to shine light on Jesus to take the fire, to take the light that he has given us and to bear it. We are light bearers. In John chapter 8, verse 12, it says, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. And, and Jesus, being the light of the world, was not put under a basket. He was put on a stand. Whoever follows me, Jesus says, will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. We are to be those who are lit up in life, the life that Jesus gives us. We are to be light bearers. We shine individually. We shine as families, we shine as local churches, and we shine as one holy church together. So how does all of this apply to church planting? How do we understand how this has anything to do with why City Church would be a church planting church? We want others to see Jesus. So here's my question for you this morning. Are you a light? Are you shining? 
Are you lit up? Are you on fire? Are you a part of a local body that is uh, making up this seven church, universal church? Are you a part of something bigger than yourself? Are you displaying and illuminating and glorifying the one who stands in our midst? Are you living that kind of life that speaks to and lights up Jesus? Are you shining for Jesus or are you walking in darkness? Maybe you're not walking in darkness, but you have a light, but you spend quite a lot of your time trying to hide it under a bushel, hide it under a basket. When what you need to do is be putting that out on the lampstand. You need to be a part of the lampstand. This is why I cannot endorse somebody that just says, it's me and Jesus. They're not getting it. They're not understanding that they need to be a part of the lampstand. It's not just that there is this one individual that's running around talking about Jesus, but there is one universal seven church. And I wonder if you're a part of it. Here's what you need to know. You are a light-bearing missionary. You are a disciple-making follower of Jesus. You are a church-planting Christian. And and what I want you to know is is that you should not be motivated by shame or guilt. Oftentimes when we talk about evangelism, we all get a little dour, a little down, realizing that we're really not proclaiming the gospel nearly as much as we think that we are, and that the response to that should be one of dourness and depression. I'm not serving my father the way that I need to. What I would tell you is this, if I've learned anything from church planting is this, is that it is a huge privilege to be on the lampstand. There's a lot of people right now, Christians included, that just are experiencing a lot of listlessness, a lot of meaninglessness. They're experiencing a lack of depth and, uh, and, and discerning greatness to their light. And they're coming into like middle age in their 30s and 40s and 50s and wondering, what is this all about? What am I doing? What am I using my life for? And what I want you to know is, is that as a Christian, you are a missionary. You are a disciple. You are a church planter. You're like, "Ah, nobody, no, we're not church planting. I'm telling you, if you've been here over the last year and a half, what we have been after is a replanting of this church a reformation of this church. You, if you're a part, if you're a member of this church, have been actively involved in church planting. And whether you know it or not, uh, City Church gives quite a lot of money to church planting. You may not have even known that over the last year we've given north of $70,000 of our money away for efforts in church planting. We give 10%-ish of our budget every year away to church planting. You're like, oh, we've got... $700,000 in income coming in every year? No, we don't. We don't. We have have literally a third of that. But we're giving it away because we want for our church to be participating in church planting in the way that we are able to at the present moment. So right now in our replanting stage, we're we're giving away, I think it's like 3% of our monthly expected budget. We're giving to Acts 29 and to SOMA as a part of efforts to church plant. We give a little bit of money to the uh, TBA to help in efforts of church planting. I will be honest with you, we may not do all of those things for very much longer, but what we will always try to do is to be a church that plants other churches. 
And what we would love to do is to actually see uh, local believers actually raised up here at City Church. It just seems like it's got to be so far off in the future that we would have someone actually raised up in this little small congregation to go out and to plant a church. But what I can tell you is, is that it is a great and glorious and meaningful endeavor. And I wonder if you would partner with us on it. You might not be the person that we actually send out. You might be a part of a core team. You might not be the person that we send out or a part of the core team, but God may have given you resources for prayer and for money to actually send out with people that we plant. We may may not be able to do it in the city. We may have to look elsewhere. Whatever God provides, we want to be faithful to go out and to bear the light of Christ in new places. And we want to do that specifically by establishing churches. City Church loves the church universal. We want to see that light bared out. We want to see legions of lampstands lit and sent out that they all might be looking to reflect the light of Christ back to him, to glorify him, that others might get a good view, a good glimpse of this living Lord and that they might follow him in obedience forever, that we might see baptisms done People baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, but not just baptizing people in and then letting them continue to live whatever kind of life that they want. Actually come into obedience and faith, teaching them to obey all that Christ has commanded us. We want that kind of church, not outside of City Church, here at City Church. Here's something that I want you to consider, and I'll say this in closing. Every local church was at one time or another planted. You probably haven't even thought about the planting, unless you were directly involved in one, thought about the church that you might have grown up in, thought about the church that you went to in uh, college, thought about this church or known anything about its planting. But here's what you need to know. There were faithful men and women who took up the call to actually plant that church that benefited you. And you can track that back however imperfectly, however messy, however hard, however heretical at times, you can actually track that back. The Lord's work, generation after generation after generation after generation. You can track back the heritage of faith that you have, and it was almost certainly a part of somebody who went, bared that lamp in some new place, and planted a church. You didn't even know that you loved church planting, but how grateful are you that somebody planted a church that was planted by another church, that was planted by another church so that you could know the gospel, so that your family could uh, be fostered and grown up in the faith. I just wonder, are you grateful for this heritage, this legacy of the legions of lampstands that lead all up to you? And I wonder what you're going to do with that inheritance. I wonder what City Church is going to do with that heritage. Because I'm going to tell you this, it's not going to remain uh, inactive or sedate. We want to be a church that is carrying the light of the gospel into new places. For those who are called, it is their life's work. It is messy and hard and heart-wrenching, but it is eternal, it is satisfying, and it is meaningful. And I want to encourage all of you to be a part of it. And I'm not just asking you, this really is the very last thing. I'm not just asking you as someone who knows this in theory. Sawyer and I wake up every single day 
with the reality of this church plant on our minds, in our hearts, in our desires, and it's good. If you want to lead a meaningful life that lasts into eternity, be a part of a church plant. Be a part of a church that plants other churches. Be a part of this light-bearing legion of lampstands that illuminate our living Lord. Let us pray for that. God and Father, you are great and mighty. You had a plan for redemption. Uh, Lord, you did not owe it to us to include us in that plan, and surely you did the finished work of Christ there on the cross without any one's help. But now you choose to set your son in the midst of the lampstands that he might be illuminated from every side and that legions of lampstands would be multiplied and go out and share the light of Jesus with others by simply shining light on him. God and Father, I pray your blessing on City Church. Would this be a place where your light, where the light of Christ is cast on Jesus where he gets a great and magnificent name and reputation, gets great glory in the city. And Lord, I pray, I pray humbly that you would help City Church, that you would help her elders and deacons and uh, core members, uh, Lord, to be faithful, to pray for how we might take part in the furtherance and revealing of the kingdom of Jesus. Lord, let us be light bearers. Lord, we shine brightly for him. God and Father, I pray that as we uh, commune together, uh, as we take communion, the bread and the wine representing Jesus' broken body and shed blood, uh, Lord, that you would let it be an act of worship, Lord, uh, uh, an act of heritage that goes straight back to the ordination of this sacrament with Jesus, where he teaches the disciples, and they become apostles, and they plant churches, and they do communion. And then families that uh, form other churches and spread the gospel and they do communion. Lord, would this be an expression of church planting? Would our songs rise to you good and pleasing, uh, most of them having come from generations before us, meaningful, deep, and rich words. Uh, Lord, help us to worship as a part of this line of faith that extends back and that is part of how you grow and reveal your kingdom. Lord, we praise you for the king that stands in the midst of the lampstands, and we ask you that we would just be worthy and enjoy his presence. Lord, we love you. We thank you so much for all of these things in uh, Jesus' great and holy name. Amen.